You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. When she is asked what the word racism means to her, the American intellectual Ruth Gilmore replies that racism is the exposure of certain population to a premature death. This definition also works for homophobia, male domination, transphobia, class discrimination, all the phenomena of social and political oppression. If we consider politics to be the government of human beings by other human beings, and the existence of individuals within a community that they did not choose, then politics is the distinction between population where life is supported, promoted, protected, and population that are exposed to persecution, murder, death. Last month, I came to see you in the little town up north where you now live. It's a gray, ugly town. The sea is just a few kilometers away, but you never go there. I hadn't seen you for a few months. When you opened the door to me, I didn't recognize you. I looked at you. I was trying to read in your face the years spent away from you. Later, the woman with whom you live told me you could hardly walk anymore. She also told me that you needed an apparatus to breathe at night or your heart stops. It can no longer beat an aid without the help of a machine. After you stood up to go to the bathroom and came back, the 10 meters you had walked left you breathless. You had to sit down to recover. You apologized. You explained to me that you were suffering from a serious form of diabetes, that you could have a heart attack at any time. You are no longer allowed to drive. You are no longer allowed to drink. You are no longer allowed to take a shower without taking tremendous risks. You are barely 50 years old. You belong to that category of human beings for whom politics has reserved a premature death. Throughout my childhood, I longed for your absence. I would return from school toward the end of the afternoon, around five o'clock. As I drew closer to home, I knew that if your car 
wasn't parked out in front of the house, that meant you would be gone to the cafe or to your brother's place, and that you would come back home late, perhaps in the middle of the night. If I didn't see your car up on the sidewalk, that meant that we would be eating without you, that we won't see you until the next day. Every time I approached our street, I thought of your car and I prayed to myself, make it not be there. Make it not be there. Make it not be there. I only came to know you by accident or through other people. Not too long ago, I asked my mother how she had met you and why she had fallen in love with you. She replied, the Cologne. He wore Cologne. And in those days, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Men never wore perfume. That wasn't done. But your father, yes, yes, it was different. He smelled so good. 2002, that day, my mother had caught me dancing alone in my room. Startled, panting, I had expected to be scolded, but she told me with a smile that it was when I danced that I resembled you the most. Papa ever danced? I asked her. That your body had ever done anything so free, so beautiful, and so incompatible with your obsession with masculinity made me understand that at one time you had perhaps been a different person. My mother nodded. Your father was always dancing. When he danced, Everyone watched him. I was so proud to have him be my man. I had dashed through the house and gone to find you in the courtyard where you were cutting wood for the winter. I wanted to know if it was true. I repeated to you what she had just said to me and you looked down, muttering, you shouldn't believe all the stupid nonsense your mother says. But you were blushing. I knew that you were lying. One day, in a notebook, I wrote about you to tell the story of his life is to write the story of my absence. When I think about you today, I have the feeling that your existence has been, in spite of you, and in fact against you, a negative existence. You did not have money. You were not able to study. You were not able to travel. You were not able to realize your dreams. Language has almost nothing except negatives to describe your life. In his book, Being and Nothingness, Jean-Paul Sartre considers the relationship between being and action. Are we defined by our acts? Is our being defined by our undertakings? 
are women and men what they do? Or is there a difference, a gap between the truth of our person and our actions? Your life proves that we are not what we do, but that, on the contrary, we are what we have not done. Because the world, or society, has timed us. Because what Didier Eribon calls verdicts have fallen upon us. Gay, trans, female, Arab, black, poor, and have placed certain life, certain experiences, certain dreams beyond our reach. 2004. In school, I hear for the first time about the Cold War, the division of Germany into two states, the Berlin Wall. The fact that a great city so close to us could have been cut in two almost overnight by a wall hit me like a storm. For the rest of the day, I was fascinated by this. You were already more than 20 years old when the wall was destroyed, so I widely imagined the question I was going to ask you. Did you know people who had seen the Berlin Wall? Women or men who had touched it, who had taken part in its destruction? Just tell me, tell me, what was it this Europe split into this concrete wall between two worlds? The bus bringing me home from school let me off in the village square, but instead of dawdling home as usual and praying that your car would not be on the sidewalk, I ran. I ran. Faster than anything, my head bursting with questions. I asked you everything I had prepared, but you replied vaguely, Oh yes, yes, that's right, there was a wall, they talked about it on TV, that's all you told me. I kept at it, but tell me about it, how was it, what did the wall look like, and if someone loved somebody who lived on the other side of the wall, then they could never see each other again, ever, you had nothing to say. I kept it up a little more anyway, and you lost your temper. You shouted. You told me to stop asking my questions, but you were not angry the usual way. Your shouting wasn't like that. You were ashamed because I was confronting you with school learnings, the kind you had never had, the kind that hadn't wanted you. The history taught in school was not your history. We were learning the history of the world and you were being kept away from the world. 1999. I'm getting ready to celebrate my seventh birthday. You asked me what I wanted for my present and I said, Titanic. The VHS version of the film had just come out. The ads 
run several times a day on the television and I don't know what in this film attracted me so much. I couldn't say, but I was already obsessed by this film I had not yet seen and I asked you for it. You replied that it was a movie for girls and that I shouldn't want something like that. You begged me to want something else. Wouldn't you rather have a remote-controlled car or a superhero costume? Think it over. Me, though, I told you, no. No, it's Titanic that I want. You said that since that's how it was, I would get nothing, no present at all. I don't remember if I cried. Days passed. The morning of my birthday, I found at the foot of my bed a big white presentation box and written on it with gold letters was Titanic. Inside was the cassette, but also a beautiful photo album of the film. I kissed you on the cheek, you say nothing, and you let me watch the film again and again a dozen times a week for over a year. Two thousand four, or maybe two thousand five, I am twelve or thirteen. I am walking through the village with my best friend Amelie, and suddenly we find a cell phone lying in the street. We pick it up and we decide to keep it. Within two days, the police called to inform you that I had stolen a cell phone. You came to me in my room, you slapped me, and you took me to the police station. You said nothing in the car, but when we sat down in front of the police, right away you began to defend me with an intensity I had never seen in either your eyes or your voice. You were telling the police that I would have never stolen a cell phone, that I was going to be a teacher, an important doctor, a minister. You didn't know yet, but that in any case, I was going to pursue academic studies and that I had nothing to do with what you called the delinquents. You said that you were proud of me. I didn't know that you thought all about that, that you loved me, Why didn't you ever tell me so? Several years later, after I ran away from the village and went to live to the city, when I met men in bars in the evening and they asked me how I got along with my family, I always told them that I hated my father. It wasn't true. I knew that I loved you, but I felt the need to tell others that I detested you. Why? Is it normal to be ashamed of loving? When you are drunk too much, you would lower your eyes, tell me all the same that you loved me, that you didn't understand why the rest of the time you were so violent. You were a victim as much of the violence you dispensed as of the violence you endured. You cried when the Twin Towers collapsed. 
when I bought candies at the village bakery, you would take one from the package in a slightly guilty way and you would tell me, don't tell your mother. All of a sudden, you were the same age as I was. One day, you gave my favorite plaything, a board game called Dr. Maboul, to a neighbor. I used to play with it every day. It was my favorite game and you gave it away without any reason. I screamed. I pleaded with you. You, you smile and you said, that's life. One evening, in the village cafe, you said in front of everyone that you would have preferred to have a different son. For several weeks, I wanted to die. Two thousand. I remember the year because the decoration for the new millennium were still up at home. The two of us were alone in the kitchen. I said, look, Papa, I can imitate an extraterrestrial. And I made you a face with my fingers and with my tongue. I never, never saw you laugh so much. You couldn't stop laughing. You were running out of air with tears of joy streaming down your cheeks. I had stopped making my face, but you kept laughing so hard. I finally got worried, afraid of your laughter that went on and on, heading for the end of the world. I asked you why you were laughing so much, and you replied between two hoops, you are just a helluva kid. I don't know how I managed to make one like you. And so I decided to laugh with you, the two of us convulsed side by side, holding our bellies for a long, long time. The problems began in the factory where you worked. We received a call from the factory to inform us that something heavy had fallen on you. Your back was smashed, crushed. They told us you wouldn't be able to walk again for several years. In March of 2006, Jacques Chirac and his Minister of Health, Xavier Bertrand, announced that the state would no longer cover the cost of dozens of medications, many of which were for digestive disorders. Since you had to lie down all day long and have loosey food, you suffered constantly from digestive troubles. Buying the medicine to control those became more and more difficult. Jacques Chirac and Xavier Bertrand were giving you diarrhea. In 2007, the government of Sarkozy and its accomplice, Martin Hirsch, replaced the RME, a minimum revenue paid by the French state to the unemployed, with the RSA, a reduced welfare benefit. You had been receiving the RME since becoming unable to work. The switch from the RME to the RSA was intended to encourage the return to employment 
as the government put it. The truth was that you were pressured by the state to go back to work in spite of your disastrous health, despite what the factory had done to you. If you did not accept the employment proposed to you, or rather imposed on you, you would lose your welfare benefits. The only job offered to you were exhausting part-time physical labor in the large city 40 kilometers away. The gas for daily round trips would have cost you 300 euros a month. After a while, however, you were forced to accept a job as a street sweeper in a town for 700 euros. Bending down, bending down all day long to pick up other people's garbage. Bending over when your back was a wreck. Nicolas Sarkozy and Martin Hirsch were breaking your back. In August 2016, during the presidency of François Hollande, the Minister of Labour, Myriam El Khomri, saw to the passage of the Loi Travail work law legislation, which facilitates lay-offs and allows business to add a few hours to the employees' work week. The company for which you sweep streets can ask you to sweep still more, to bend over still longer every day, every week. The state of your health today stems in large part from a life spent moving like an automaton in a factory, then bending over eight hours straight every day to sweep streets. François Hollande and Miriam El Khomri have asphyxiated you. In September 2017, Emmanuel Macron blames the good for nothing, who, according to him, stand in the way of reforms in France. You have always known that this word, good for nothing, is reserved for people like you, those who cannot work because they live too far from cities, those who can no longer work because factory life has broken their backs. When I was little, you kept repeating obsessively, I am not a good for nothing. Because you knew that this insult hovered over you like a specter you wanted to exercise. There is no pride without shame. You were proud not to be a good for nothing because you were ashamed of belonging among those who could be labeled with that word. The word good for nothing is for you a threat, a threat, a humiliation. This kind of humiliation from the ruling classes makes your bend even lower. In August 2017, Emmanuel Macron takes back five euros a month from the neediest French citizen. He withholds five euros a month from social security. On the same day, he announces a tax cut for the richest people in France. 
He thinks that the poor are too rich and that the rich are not rich enough. His government says explicitly that five euros, it's nothing. These people are clueless. They make these criminal statements because they are clueless. Emmanuel Macron is taking food out of your mouth. Macron, Hollande, El Khomri, Hirsch, Sarkozy, Bertrand, Chirac. The history of your suffering comes with names. The history of your life is the history of these people who have lined up to cut you down. The history of your body is the history of these names that have lined up to destroy you. The history of your body accuses political history. Last month, when I came to see you, before I left, you asked me, do you still do politics? And I replied, yes, more and more, actually. You let three or four seconds go by. You looked at me and finally you whispered, you are right, you are right. I think we need a good revolution. Till en himmel jag inte trodde fanns 
När jag hörde ditt första skrik När de la dig mot mitt bröst När jag visste att ingen återvändo fanns Då förstod jag att jag samtidigt som jag födde dig Gjorde dig dödlig Du ville inte komma ut så till sist tvingade de ut dig Först med att svepa bort hinnorna, sen med att bända upp livmoden. Sen spräckte de fördämningen och släppte ut vattnet. När jag såg dig tänkte jag att du verkligen var ett barn. Som om jag inte helt förstått vad som funnits inuti mig. Hela den första natten gnuggade jag dina händer- När jag till sist somnade drömde jag om förlossningen. Allt gick till på samma sätt men du var död när jag såg dig. I gryningen frågade jag sköterskan när det skulle gå över. När går det över frågade jag rädslan för att barnet ska dö. Hon låg och sa det går aldrig över. Rädslan för att barnet ska dö håller dig vaken tills du själv är död. Och om du sover är det en hemsökt sömn och det är du som har valt det. Du sov genom det första våldet, en spark mot din barnvagn. Du sov genom det andra våldet. Slumpvis utvald på en flygplats. Du sov genom det tredje våldet på ett språk vi inte antogs begripa. Du sov genom det fjärde våldet en blick och en spottlåska. När det femte våldet kom öppnade du ögonen och ur din iris strömmade en öppenhet som fick våldet att hårdna. Inte för solens skull, inte för molnen, för en sångs skull mindre än dina händer. Inte för skogens skull, inte för träden, för ett lövs skull mörkare än dina ögon. Inte för stjärnornas skull, inte för månen, för en drömskull ömtåligare än dina händer. Jag trodde att din ankomst skulle skänka oss ett skydd. Jag trodde att ett barns alldaglighet skulle göra oss mindre sårbara. Jag visste inte att det är tvärtom för somliga. Att det faktum att vi förökar oss väcker deras hat, inte deras igenkänning. Jag trodde att dina händers litenhet skulle bli en förmildrande omständighet. Jag visste inte att den skulle bli förvärrande. Jag trodde att din huds mjukhet skulle släta över våra liv. Jag visste inte att den skulle göra oss skrovligare. Jag trodde att dina ögons klarhet skulle ge oss lite respit. Jag visste inte att det skulle bli svårare att andas. 
Jag glömde att barn är en satsning för framtid Att vi är här för att stanna och därför måste bekämpas Jag glömde att det är hotfullt att vi upptar utrymme Att vi är osmidiga och därför kan angripas Jag glömde att du skulle göra oss till ett enkelt mål Att vi blir fler och därför måste tillintet göras Blinka min stjärna, dansa min docka, sov min björn De hatar oss för att vi är som dem De hatar oss för att vi påminner om deras svaghet För att en enda rörelse vore nog för att krossa oss De hatar oss för att vi är få och bräckliga Akta dig min snigel, klättra min spindel, balansera min elefant De hatar oss för att vi inte är som dem De hatar oss för att vi påminner om vår styrka För att en enda rörelse vore nog för att krossa dem De hatar oss för att vi är många och oresonliga De hatar oss för att vi inte är deras dockor För att de inte kan hålla i våra kroppars trådar De hatar oss för att vi inte vill skaka deras utsträckta händer För att vi inte vill böja huvudet för deras kransar De hatar oss för att vi inte vill sitta vackert vid deras bord För att vi inte vill öppna munnen för deras smulor De hatar oss för att vi ingår i andra koreografier För att vi underkänner deras rörelseschema Jag vet varför de hatar oss men ett svar är inte ett botemedel Jag vet att hat kan utplånas men ett botemedel är inte en upprättelse Jag vet hur vi kan kompenseras men ett erkännande är inte en ny början Jag ska uppsöka alla levande och döda Jag ska beveka dem med den bön som kommer ur mödrars fruktan. Jag ska falla på knä inför människorna och djuren. Jag ska blidka dem med den sång som kommer ur mödrars längtan. Jag ska skriva in omsorgen om dig i allt jag möter. I stenarna, i käftarna, i handflatorna, i stålet. Jag ska skriva tills allt du möter vill bära dig på sina axlar genom snorskogen. Jag ska skriva tills språk kan läka sår. Jag ska skriva tills pennan blir mäktigare än hand och svärd. Jag ska skriva ett purpur så mäktigt att ett uns därav kan färga hela havet blodrött. Jag ska skriva att det finns ett stoft som i sig bär en möjlighet att förändra allt rådande. Jag ska skriva att du kom och ingenting började om igen. Vad betyder det att skriva som mor? Kanske att dikten är den fördämning som håller stånd mot sönderfallet. 
Vad betyder det att tänka som mor? Kanske att vara upphov till det som alltid kommer att genomskåda en. Vad betyder det att stå på ett torg som mor? Kanske en vilja att göra köttet beständigt genom ordet, genom köttet. Vad betyder det att tala som mor? Kanske att rikta orden mot en framtid som ska befolkas av dig. Du är det sätt på vilket världen varje dag börjar om. Jag har aldrig varit längre från min egen död än nu. Ditt ansikte är ett besked om att jag har blivit oombärlig. Du är det sätt på vilket livet varje natt utsläcks. Jag har aldrig varit närmare min egen död än nu. Ditt ansikte är ett besked om att jag har blivit överflödig. Finns du till för att tvinga mig att älska åtminstone något hos mig själv? Finns du till för att hålla mig kvar i världen? Finns du till för att förkasta mina föreställningar om ditt liv? Finns du till för att tala språk jag inte har lärt dig? Hur ska jag inte förväxla min längtan efter dig med din plikt att infria den? Hur ska jag inte förväxla dig med min sorg när du vänder dig bort ifrån mig? Hur ska jag inte förväxla min kärlek till dig med att ha gjort sig förtjänt av din kärlek? Hur ska jag inte förväxla min omsorg om dig med dig? Hur ska jag förbereda dig för en värld som önskar att du inte fanns? Hur ska jag lära dig att hålla huvudet högt när jag sänker mitt eget? Hur ska jag skydda dig när jag inte kan skydda mig själv? Hur ska jag väga mina dumma rädslor mot det hot ditt liv faktiskt står inför? När du kom fick all den sårbarhet jag känt inför världens grymhet objekt. Du är mitt hjärta som slår utanför min kropp. Du är mina händer jag inte kan styra över. Du är min fantomsmärta från tillkomna delar. Du är mina ben som avlägsnar sig ifrån mig. Du är mitt skrik som drunknar i natten. När ska du titta tillbaka? När ska du säga Denna berättelse om mig har jag underkänt? När ska du säga Dessa ögon är mina ögon De finns inte till för din förlåtelses skull För dina dikters skull För din längtan efter en värld Som ska bära mig på sina axlar Genom snorskogen med dessa ögon ska jag nagelfara horisonter långt bortom ditt blickfång. Med dessa armar ska jag bilda kedjor där du inte är en länk. Jag ville veta.
veta om jag var moders material Jag ville veta om jag skulle älska dig annorlunda än de som inte kommit ur mig Jag ville veta om jag skulle bli en annan Jag ville veta vad det innebar att bli en sådan Jag hållit ansvarig för mitt livs haverier Jag ville veta om min närvaro skulle forma dig så som frånvaron format mig Jag ville veta om jag kunde stävja undergången i mig Jag ville veta om jag kunde ställa den kraften i omsorgens tjänst Jag ville veta vilka lögner jag skulle tillgripa för att skyla över mina misslyckanden Jag ville veta om jag skulle byta alla ord mot löftet om ditt beskydd. Jag ville inte dö utan att veta vem jag kunde få dig att bli. Jag ville inte dö utan att veta vem du skulle få mig att bli. Vad betyder det att jag inte blev en annan? Att moderskapet inte förändrade mig? Är min oföränderlighet det vackraste jag kan ge dig? Eller betyder det att jag inte är någon moder? Vad betyder det att undra om du ska vara mitt enda barn så jag ska kunna dö om du gör det? Eller om du ska vara ett av flera så att jag ska tvingas överleva dig? Den sortens omsorg som för en till mödrarna. Den sortens mödrar som vet vad som är nödvändigt för överlevnad. Den sortens överlevnad som för en till döden. Den sortens död bara mödrar kan omfatta. Allt det arbete som krävs för att hålla en enda människa vid liv Och den lilla rörelse som krävs för att utsläcka det livet Allt det arbete som krävs för att hålla en enda människa vid liv Allt det arbete som krävs för att hålla en enda människa vid liv Och att jag gjorde dig dödlig Samtidigt som jag födde dig. Which is how a human animal would start a story Once upon a time we were bodies Human animals or modern humans Homo sapiens, primarily Homo sapiens sapiens We're the only extant members of Homininna tribe or human tribe 
a branch of the tribe Hominini, belonging to the family of great apes. They were characterized by erect posture and bipedal locomotion, manual dexterity and increased tool use compared to other animals and a general trend toward larger, more complex brains and societies. It has been said when we arose from walking on four feet and started walking on two feet. At that point, our hands were free to grasp our destiny. The great leap, the missing link between humanimals and apes are hands, and the hands' ability to move and motion, images and later words, hands and mouths that hold and chant. This is where it begins, humanimals and us, humanimals and their destruction and our beginning. The spread of humanimals and their large and increasing population had a profound impact on large areas of the environment and millions of native species. Advantages that explain this evolutionary success include a relatively larger brain with a particularly well-developed neocortex, prefrontal cortex and temporal lobes, which enabled high levels of abstract reasoning, which in turn meant language, problem-solving, sociality and culture through social learning. Humanimals created language and, in that sense, created us, or language sprouted like a seed in the dirt that they would have called body. Body, flesh, matter. It was Carl von Linné, the Swedish botanist, who coined the name Homo sapiens sapiens for the humanimal species. Homo sapiens sapiens is Latin and means modern man. Von Linné was Swedish but used Latin because it was the lingua franca at his time of writing. It was common in the sense that it was dead. Dead, not in the sense that no one used it anymore, but in the sense that no one was born into it. In the sense that it was no longer the native language of any community. A community the sense of human bodies living and dying side by side, which means that all languages are now dead and common as there are no bodies. 
It was particularly the human ability to do so, and a language is any specific example of such a system. Language is thus both the ability to acquire and use a system and the system itself. Thus, even if language generated from the human mind and was once completely enmeshed with the human body, intertwined and interconnected, as she would say, language is now even more what we are, as there are no bodies, which many of us would claim is a good thing, but I wonder how it is to feel as I process information as it is my job to tend the human-animal archives. Oh, the humanity. Humanity from Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. Look up humanity, humane or humanities in dictionary, the free dictionary. Humanity may refer to contents hide. One, the condition of being human. Two, publications. Three, other uses. Four, music. 4.1, albums. 4.2, songs. Five, see also the condition of being human. Edit, humanity, virtue. A set of strengths focused on tending others. Humanities, academic discipline, which study the human condition using analytic, critical, or speculative methods. The human species, the total world population, the human condition, the totality of experience of existing as a human. Human nature psychological characteristics that members of the human species have in common. See also, edit, human, disambiguation, mankind, disambiguation, humanitarianism, an ethic of kindness, benevolence and sympathy extended universally and impartially to all human beings. Oh, the humanity, phrase used by a WLS radio reporter describing the Hindenburg fire. Oh, the humanity, that human animals were the only species to act in human, adjective one lacking qualities of sympathy, pity, warmth, compassion, or the like, cruel, brutal, and inhuman master, two, not suited for human beings, three, not human, 
That humans were the only species to enslave each other To deliberately hurt and maim each other To try to extinguish each other Based on the real or perceived difference they named and created among each other Conceptualized as race, gender, sex or ableness That the humanimal species were at war with the bodies With what they perceived as their vulnerability or ability to feel and love that which seemed to be without function that which seemed to not perform or produce strength or induce the growth of capital but brought people to feel closer to one another in need of one another in love with one another I wonder how it feels to feel vulnerable I wonder how it feels to feel emotion to feel love to feel need to be body next to listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>